Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Tonight is the third lecture entitled The French Revolution and the Jewish Religion. So we're doing this one whole week through and two days next week. All right, I'm picking up where we left off last night, which is a complicated story. And uh, I start by saying that, as we've seen, remember, they had the uh, revolution, but it wasn't so violent, really, as people imagine. Uh, You had the storming of the Bastille, and that was violent. But generally speaking, generally speaking, um, it's a middle-class business. It's all about setting up what we in America would call a parliament or a congress. First, they had a national assembly, then they called it the legislative assembly. These were elections, you know. And there's middle class people, and there were plenty of people at this point who were conservative or uh, Catholic priests and were opposed to this move or that move. And they debated and they voted, it, and, you know, some things got in and some things didn't get in, as we saw last time. You know, when they wanted to give the Jews civil rights in 1790, there were not enough votes for it. When they wanted to give the Jews in 1791, there were enough votes for it. You have a history like that in American Congress of a lot of issues like that. You know, there were times, for example, when they went to pass civil rights legislation back in Truman's time, you couldn't get enough votes for it. In Lyndon Johnson's time, you had enough votes for it. That's, that's all. That's, that's kind of regular. So, uh, as we've seen, the Legislative Assembly gave the Jews civil rights, but in the French way, in the context of a quid pro quo. The, remember that? The exact nature of the quid pro quo was never put into written or legal form. You have to learn to speak French. You have to do this. You have to give up that. On paper, the Jews got civil rights, period. For the Jews, this was a plus and a minus. The plus was the elimination of legal restrictions that had been around for a long, long time, many, many centuries. True, the governments in the provinces in Alsace tried to do a George Wallace. They tried to stop this, as happened in America when Johnson passed the civil rights bills. And in the South, they didn't do it for a while until they did. Some of us are old enough to remember, they didn't integrate the schools right away. They didn't implement this and any other, but eventually, eventually got with the program. So that's what happened with the Jews in France. In the long run, the central government from Paris intervened on behalf of the Jews, even though the governmental officials were not crazy about fighting for Jewish rights. <coughs> it's, it's quite similar to what you have in many countries when there is a pretty strong uh, change or reform or something like that, and it gets legislated, but there's a gap of time between the time they legislate on the one hand and the time it actually gets implemented, assuming that it does on the other hand, and that's uh, typical. The biggest single minus for the Jews, as the Jews saw it, was the sudden end of the autonomous coercive communities, because that was part of the deal. This is experienced as, very, as being very disorienting, because the Kehillah had been around for a long time and was as basic to their understanding of Judaism as Shabbos and Kashras. This is something that nobody here can understand because we live in a different century. And we're all American. And so to us, being a from Jew is a matter of personal choice. It's got nothing to do with uh, being a member of an autonomous uh, community or anything like that. You want to go to this shul, you go to this shul. A little bit later, you feel more modern, you go to that shul. A little bit later, you, you feel less modern, you go to that shul. A little bit later, you don't want the whole Orthodox Judaism, you go to no shul. You know, you can do what you want. And 
we experience the basics of Judaism as being, you know, sort of the, the fundamental halachas that run around. Shabbos, Kashas, Tars, Mishpacha, and things like that. That is true. And that was true in the 1700s in France, and in the 1600s and 1500s and so forth. But one of the things that Jews used to feel, which we in Chutz Laaretz don't, is that the Jewish people um, are a nation, a kingdom, mamleches koanim, with the key word in the word mamleches. We're a kingdom. Uh, we're not just a group. We're not a sect, and we're not a religious denomination. That's a new word that happened at the time of the French Revolution. Religious denomination is something that doesn't uh, ring well within authentic Judaism. The Jews were a nation with a king and all that. In long ago, we lost that nation. That was a bummer. All that is true. And we did it because God punished us and blah, 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 blah. No question about it. And one day, we're going to get it back. Could happen tomorrow or whatever. That's how Jews always thought. Consequently, the Jews were always very loath to give up the national aspect of their identity. And one of the reasons that they always had Kahillas everywhere was, this is a little kingdom of Israel. Of course, it's not a real kingdom in the 100% sense. It can't be. But if it's a kingdom in the 50% sense, or in the 20% sense, or even in the 2% sense, that there's some feeling over here that this is not just a club, this is not just a denomination you feel like signing up with or changing your mind later on, but you're a member of a shtickle kingdom, a kingdom in exile, a kingdom condemned by the Lord God to this, that, and the other, no question, but you're a member of a kingdom, then you say like this, you're an Englishman, you're a Frenchman, you're a Russian, I'm a Jew. See, I didn't say you're a Christian, you're a Muslim. I use national terms. You're a Frenchman, you're an Englishman, you're a German, and I'm a Jew. My nationality is a Jewish. That's my nationality. What am I doing living in Germany? Gullus, you know? Read the Bible and you'll see. That's how Jews thought for century after century. And as I said before, since they really retained, at, at, least, at least at some deep atavistic level, a belief that tomorrow or next year or my children's time or my grandchildren's time or something is going to change, so why should they give it up? You understand? We're temporary guests in somebody else's house. This is a very important point. Uh, now this is stripped away. The French and modern world in general is saying if you want to be living among us, you have to drop that business, okay? There are no more autonomous courts and communities. Judaism has to be completely, you know, personal and voluntary sort of thing. Um, now, I'm not exactly right in what I'm saying because in France, as we'll see later on, and elsewhere, in some certain other European countries, there's a long tradition of the state dominating the particular uh, religious denomination and controlling it. France is a very good example of that. And the Jews in France are officially part of French Judaism, as it were, you know, controlled by the government. So there is a certain element of coercion or autonomy, but not in the sense that I just described before, that you're a kingdom within a kingdom, a state within a state. You understand? Uh, this is all new. And so to tell a Jew that this no longer exists was as psychologically radical as saying the base of Mesh just got burned. Did you hear? I just heard news. A month ago, we didn't get the news that in a time called Tisha B'Av, a few uh, weeks ago, the whole thing got burned down. They said, what? You know, no more base of Migdosh? See, you're also, what? There's no more Kehila? It was hard to get used to that. I'll repeat. I can tell by the looks in your eyes that you have no idea what I'm talking about. So I'm introducing something to you that uh, I'm well aware you don't know, but now you do. And uh, the place this really comes home 
and the first time like a hammer on the head was when the Jews got the civil rights as part of a quid pro quo in France in 1790 and 1791. Um, now, you got to go with the flow, so immediately the head Jew in Alsace, Surf Bear, who was a from guy, but was a classic member of the Puma and the Akrut, you know, the old class of uh, community lead, rich, rich community leaders, he said, guys, we've got to get with the program. I know this is radical and all the rest of it, <laughs> but, you know, time marches on, they'll march all over us, they'll kill us. So go get with the program. Basically, let's make the best out of Aim Brera. Okay, let's go to the next one. Right? We have to become like the Frum Haskalah. That's, that, that's our option now. Can't go Hasidic. It's not an option in France. <laughs> you see? Can't go the old way. The, 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 the government, the society's not giving. It's not an option. This is the best we can do. If you be a religious too, like, like uh, Mendelssohn or Naftali Wesley or these guys, maybe by the standards of Prague and Vilna, you know, they're not from. But by the standards of Paris and the other ones, that's, they're, they're from. They were Shammah Shabbos. They kept kosher. They put on tefillin every day. They believe in Torah. But they obviously don't believe in an intense cultural insularity. Well, guess what? It's France. That's not up for discussion anymore. You see? Um, but now, no, that's it. Uh, now, everything I said is true except when it isn't. And it's the exception to all rules has to do with money. At least that's my experience in life. What is yours? Uh, what about the debts? The debts. You're telling me now that there were kahilas that have been around for hundreds of years. And they were legal corporations. And so one of the things they had to do was borrow and lend, especially borrow to cover deficits. Uh, you know, a new wall for the cemetery, a new this, that. Not every kahila is rolling into rhino. Usually Schultz, as far as I know, don't have big surpluses. So they had to go and uh, borrow money, including from Gentile banks. Okay, and sometimes the debt is 50 years old, 100 years old, you know, like, like that. And you pay it off year by year. But now the state says the kahila as an institution no longer exists. So does that mean you get to stiff the bank? <laughs> you know, who owes you the money? You follow? Um, now, let's put it this way. Uh, is the French government going to assume these debts? Uh, that's what they did with the uh, Protestants and other denominations. It's abolishing the killers. So basically the question was, is the new revolutionary government going to do an Alexander Hamilton? Because what is Alexander Hamilton famous for? He said, we're starting a brand new country called the Federal Republic, the United States of America, and the federal government will take on the debts of all the states. That's what he said, right? That's called the assumption of debts. If you know anything at all about your early American history, that's what, that's what put Hamilton on the map. And he said, by the way, this way the federal government will get credit because when you get out in the market and you borrow money, you pay and you start paying, you get credit. So that's good for business. And that's what launched, um, you know, <laughs> the American business cycle. Uh, because until then, in the 1780s, under what they call the Articles of Confederation, the money was all over the place. It was going down the tubes because there wasn't any good money in all the states. What happens in bad times is the rich people grab the physical money and hide it. Get it? It was actually a gold coin with gold in it. It doesn't circulate in the market because the rich person who's got a hold of it isn't stupid. It's going to put it away. So then everybody else, the regular people, can't get any good money. They have to have bad money. Once you have bad money, you got a bad economy. So Hamilton did that. That was a great act of statesmanship on his part. Um, is France going to do that? Uh, no. <laughs> right? Uh, as they say, as comes to Geld, as Anderwelt. Uh, you know, all these communities 
have to uh, dissolve, but not dissolve. <laughs> they can't be separate communities, except in the sense that they got to be separate communities in order to pay their debts to the Christians. Okay, uh, so it's funny. We we want to get rid of you, but 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 not, but we don't. Now the Christians in Alsace say that they want their debts to the Jews canceled because we owed money to the unfree Jews. France has now declared them citizens and free Jews. Their whole Matthias has changed. So you hear the part, right? I owe $10,000, you know, to Kaplan. But now it's Kaplan. So I don't owe him any money. <laughs> you, you follow? Uh, wait a minute. The Christians want their debts to the Jews canceled, but not the other way around. Well, I'm shocked to hear that. Ironically, in order to ensure that Kahilos keep paying their debts, the French government requires the Jews to remain taxpaying members of their local Jewish communities. And so uh, history has a sense of humor, as they say. And uh, you had a screwball situation in 1791, 1792, 1793, and so forth, because, you know, all the Jews are saying, that, you know, what, what's our status and all the rest of it? And, you know, the French government basically had made this grand sweeping declaration that all the Jews are citizens, and they hadn't thought out and hadn't worked through the details. And there were, st as I pointed out in the last two days, they really were kind of anti-Semitic in a pretty d heavy way. So they said, I'm not paying money for a Jew. <laughs> I mean, I owe money to a Jew. I'm not paying money for, for, for a Jewish debt. And uh, only in the 1830s, after another revolution, did the French government at that time, under very different circumstances, um, Louis-Philippe, did they actually say, okay, we're going to assume the debts over here of the uh, communities. So if you're Jewish and you're living in 1800, 1810, 1820, all the rest of it, aside from all the other junk and tax you got to pay, you also have to pay so and so much money every month for that stupid old debt that, you, that your Zadie incurred way back when that the government won't let you get rid of. And I wouldn't move out of the town and go to say, no, you can't move anywhere until that debt is paid off. So it's a weird, weird world. In the new atmosphere, uh, there is a revolution in deference, in deference. What I mean is, now that the revolution has overturned so many institutions of authority and shredded them, local poor schnooks in Shul, who don't really pay any, anything, any money, any real money into the Kehila, do not hesitate to challenge and criticize the officers of the congregation of the community, which would be unthinkable in the old days. Everybody knows this place, and you don't, uh, you know, act uh, chutzpah or you'll pay a price. They could put you in the stockade, you know, have a big mouth to the parnas, right? You criticize the rabbi, or you forget the rabbi, you criticize the president of Shul or chairman of the board, you, you could get arrested in the old days. This is this how Europe, this is how the Jews ran it, um, and everybody did. So criticizing the Akrut was unthinkable in the Ancien Regime, the Alufim Tovim Parnasim Ukatsinim. And uh, what can I tell you? Uh, just imagine the French Revolution in Dishol, you know, Hertzberg, something like that. You get the idea. Now, meanwhile, however, life went on. It's 1791, and going to 1792, the French Revolution now started to slowly but surely descend into violence and terror. Right, this is the famous story. Uh, now, there's a reason for it. Uh, you had this government, you had all these radicals, but you also had right-wingers back and forth, people arguing over how to run the country, which is normal. And uh, the other European countries invaded, especially, let's go to the next one. Here is the, uh, the Prussian army, okay? On the, on the, uh, actually, the Austrian army is gonna fight the French uh, because Austria used to rule Belgium, if you know your geography, 
and uh, the Austrian army, let's put it this way, Marie Antoinette is Austrian. Her mother, she's, she's the sister, or actually at this time, the, the, uh, it's too complicated to explain. She's the aunt of the Austrian emperor. And uh, so, the, so basically, uh, the Austrians say, we're coming in to rescue her. Get it? Or we're going to invade and rescue her. And they talk, have a big battle, several battles on the French frontier. Here's the Austrians with the white coats. And they are experienced soldiers. And the French are brand new because this is a revolutionary army. And the Austrians, you know, give them a successful cavalry charge, as you see over here. And the French are badly defeated. And uh, the result is that uh, back in Paris and other places, oh, what's resign? You know, we're getting invaded. And France has not been successfully invaded uh, for a long time. And uh, if these new guys come in, what are they going to do? Restore the king to the old system? What are they going to do to the leaders of the revolution? Are they going to kill everybody? Uh, are they going to return the laws? Are the peasants going to give their, have to give their land and taxes back to the nobles? Are you going to have to return your land back to the church? And so on and so forth. And uh, as you see over here, look, they, they charge them. And Jamap, I think it was. And uh, what do you call it? The Austrians beat the heck out of them, right? So uh, if, 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 if you know what you're doing. Now, uh, so there, the point is like this. There forms a, a strong uh, element of French nobles who ran away. And now are plotting their return. They're called emigres because they emigrated. Emigres. And here's a scene from a very famous French movie from Jean Renoir uh, in 1938 where... Uh, Yes. You can you can turn the sound off. You know. Yeah, we on it. Yeah, you can see the, the you can see the thing. Yeah, just turn it off. She these are emigres, French nobles. They ran away to Prussia to Koblenz, and they're saying, "I like the king of Prussia. He's an Agamemnon. He's a man. He weighs two hundred pounds, and uh, any thick-headed." Jacobin French Revolution will stop pretending that all men are equals because we all know the nobles are more equal and so forth after seeing him. And they are, along with Prussia, they're planning to return on Prussian bayonets to France. And these are French nobles who say, you know, I'm not so sure Prussia is a Protestant country. It's indecent to team up with heretics. The Prussians are Protestants. And anyway, uh, the other guy says, listen, let us be grateful to the Prussians. They're, they're giving us food because we're kicked out of our country. We don't have any food. And Prussians are giving us what to do, even though it's not Versailles. And you'll see this guy who represents a patriotic emigre. He said, I don't, I, I don't know. You know, maybe the Prussians will take a piece of France. You understand? I, I don't feel comfortable with them. He says, when we emigrated, everything was nice, it was clear. We didn't need uh, subsidies. We wanted the triumph of ideas, royalist ideas, okay? And we want to make successful our own. So if we organize an emigre army, which on its own could do it, that's one thing. But to come in on the Prussian army, that's like washing the dirty laundry, uh, you know, not within the family, and the neighbors come and watch the laundry. Which means that, uh, it's a very famous movie, by the way. Uh, and it, what it means is that the French are, um, even the right-wingers are, you know, of two minds that were coming in on, on foreign bayonets. And uh, imagine how it made the people in uh, Paris feel. Um, and then the commander of the invading army, the Duke of Brunswick, issues a very famous proclamation, which says, if you touch one hair on the head of the king or the queen, uh, we will exterminate Paris. That's quite a sad. First of all, it's always dumb to say it. First capture a city and then do it. But, you know, that's what Stalin, that's what Stalin would do. But he said, you know, he said, come in. 
what does that do to everybody? It freaks them out big time if the king is harmed. This was the worst mistake possible for the king. I get it? What do you think the reaction of the French people is going to be to that? Do you think that they're going to say, oh, oh, we're afraid of you, and therefore we're going to let the king go and bring it? This radicalizes the legislative assembly and all those in favor of the new France. Okay? And uh, this heated everybody up in a way that they hadn't been heated up before. So basically, as often happens, you poke your nose in, in a family's quarrel, you make it worse. Right? How many in-laws are in this room? Raise your hand. You know, say so says, uh, it's, it's, it, 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 it uh, doomed the king and the queen and all those people. It led to all the violence. Um, it radicalized the country, and the French people go wild. This is a very famous moment in French history. And they determined to fight the invaders. And they have a levy en masse, which means they just call everybody to arms. And they're suffused with a national adrenaline. And, of course, this is when they create the famous national anthem of France. Look how bloody it is. Arise, ye children of the Father and their glory, against this tyranny's bloody standards race. That's the Duke of Brunswick. He says he's going to kill everybody. Listen to the sound in the fields, the howling of the fearsome soldiers. Coming to, they're coming in our midst to cut the throats of your sons and consorts. Right? That's what happened. Therefore, they say, uh, let impure blood water our furrows. That's it. Marshall, Marshall. I'll give you the song in a second. But uh, I know it's a very well-known tune. But I don't believe most people know what the words are. And, no, and, no, and, and, no, and the reason is because of a very specific moment. You understand? It was done because everybody said, oh, yeah. This is not the same thing, but to give you a little idea, I'm talking about how did Israel feel in 48 when the Arabs said, we're all coming to get you and we're going to kill everybody. What did Jews do? Like that, right? Mavet la polshim. You know, destiny of I could totally hear it. So basically it's called a trapped rat is going to fight. And that's what happened. Here's a very famous French picture. A little kid introduced it to the soldiers, you see. They're marching to the... To arms. And let's defend the liberty. And, they f and, and then thousands of volunteers come to fight. And the legend, this is the little kid that thought it up. They're marching to the front. To arms, those citizens, form your battalions. So he teaches them, then one unit teaches the other. So that's why the French are proud of this, because for one moment they all got together and kicked these guys out. So who's going to win the war? 
right? The French or the invaders? See what I'm saying? And then when it shows, it spreads from unit to unit. Until the impure blood waters our fields. La sangre impure, right? The impure blood. So in other words, they go like that. And uh, the fear of the approaching invaders leads to the defeat of the invaders, as you can see over here. Because if you're at a Prussian also and you run into these guys, whoa, you know. And an atmosphere emerges in Paris and elsewhere in France. Uh, kill all the invaders and all the communists here, those, all the supporters of the invaders, all the supporters of the king, who they see is in league with the invaders, because obviously these guys, even the ones who are in jail, want the other guys to win to get them out of jail. And so it's a grand treason act, and it leads to a night of long knives against anyone in France, uh, here you can show the next thing, uh, who they suspect of belonging to these groups, and now mob violence goes wild against anybody who might be, so it's a terror, you understand? But it's a terror from the mob, later become a terror from the government. And so here they're reading about uh, the invasion and so forth, and that's Danton, and where's this thing in the mob? Because they all attacked the prisons and they and they stabbed their body, bashed their heads against the wall, threw them out the windows, and, and chopped women up in half and, and, and three quarters and things of that nature. I guess you're spared that. Okay, I'm not going to wait for it. Um, it, 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 it. It went crazy. You understand? It went crazy. And uh, the stage is then set in the context of the war and the terror and the killing for the emergence of a leadership uh, which believes in terror. I'll say it again, as a matter of policy. Okay? And the idea is like this. We'll kill anybody who's even a Suffolk, and that way we'll sure we'll get them all. Like Stalin said like this. It's worthwhile to kill 99 innocent men as long as you get that son of a gun. <laughs> right? Okay? So uh, that's, that's, that comes from the French Revolution. And... No, this is just the wrong piece. Okay, um, so what happens? The, the, the royal palace is attacked. Uh, the guards surrounding the king are beheaded. Uh, the king is arrested uh, as a traitor. A republic is established. Oh, we didn't have a republic now. Till now, it was a constitutional monarchy. I've been telling you that. When the Jews were um, given civil rights, it was under a king. Under, you know, now it was a parliamentary uh, system. Uh, forget that. This is September of, of 92, one year after the Jews got the civil rights, one year. And uh, then it goes wild because one event leads to the other and the king and the queen are beheaded, right? There's a trial and he gets a guillotine and then she does. And of course that leads the European countries to go to war against France. But you see what a mood the French were. And uh, so it's a war. So let's put it this way. They're killing the king and the queen and the nobles and all that, like the Scarlet Pimpernel. Then they're going to war against Austria and Prussia and England and Spain and Russia and this, that, and the other. And there's a civil war in France itself in many provinces, if you have it over there, uh, like the Vendée, which is in, in, in southern, uh, near, near the Atlantic coast, uh, where we're super Catholic uh, places, and there are the peasantry. 
and the Hamun Am, as they say, was violently against the revolution because they said, I guess you're hurting the Catholic Church, our local priests, and this and that and the other. Therefore, you're all Misi, you're atheists. And they become very bloody, so the government becomes twice as bloody, and you get one of these civil war type situations, which unbelievable atrocities committed by one set of French on the other. By one set of French on the other. And uh, what's the result? Um, France goes unspeakably violent, 40,000 are guillotined, uh, and Robespierre, Maximilien Robespierre, becomes the head of the, what they call the Committee of Public Safety, meaning that the leadership of the country is put on the Committee of, what we today we would call the Committee of National Security, okay? Uh, uh-oh. Um, and an official reign of terror, I repeat, an official reign of terror ensues throughout the country for two years, close to two years. So in that situation, anybody in Paris or Marseille or Lyon or a village or something like that, if one person denounces them, usually in that atmosphere you get killed, and I mean killed in a bloody way. They could uh, take you in. Here's, here's a favorite one. They take a whole bunch of people, tie them with weights, and throw them to, in the bottom of the river. Here's another one. You saw people in half, right? Here's another one. You, know, you, you make an X like that. And, uh, you know, and another, it, got, it, it got really uh, uh, crazy. Let me put it this way. It's not the American Civil War. It's the French Civil War. Uh, I'm always very uh, hesitant when everybody goes starts taking down the statues of Robert E. Lee. Not that I have any money, money invested in Robert E. Lee. Because I hear the reason, but that's Robespierre. We in America have been able, in a remarkable way, to work out the Civil War memories in such a way that it wasn't like the French, and after the war's over, so the South was wrong and the slavery was wrong, and we got rid of all that, and they're totally defeated, and this and that and the other. But don't spit on them and tell their grandchildren to spit on your grandpa because they that they fought what they believed in. They weren't right. They, they were not right. But it's over. You understand? And you know what happened with Lee and, and Grant Appomattox? Grant said, "I guess take all your stuff home. The war's over. I'm not gonna put you in concentration camps." That's a chachma, right? Notice, I don't want the civil war that raged in America so bloodily for four years to turn into a permanent business and turn into a savage business. The official battles were pretty savage enough, but you didn't have, at least to my knowledge, in America, anything along the lines where they take people. First of all, I don't think women were violated at all, I think, which is kind of interesting for a four-year big civil war. That's just interesting, okay? They bomb places and all that. But as far as I'm aware, there weren't any rapes or things of that nature, which is, which is, which is interesting. A lot of these generals were big Christians, you know. I get it, you know, how can you be a Christian do this and the other, but there, there, there was a, a culture out there. Um, in France, in Russia, in China, in Spain, in one country after another, when they get to civil wars, all restraints are unleashed, and people do the most unspeakable things to the other ones, and get used to it. That's how they do business, not part of the world. You understand? So uh, that's happened in France. And eventually, over the course of two years, they all kill each other, They're like the drug lords, you know what I mean? By the time it's all over, Danton was killed by Robespierre, and uh, you know, Saint-Just and Robespierre were killed by this one, and then they were killed by this one, and uh, you know, they all ended up in the guillotine anyway. They're, they're, it really happened that way. All the guys that organized the first round, which was Danton and Desmoulins and this one and that one and the other, they, they all got chopped off their heads, and then the guys that did it to them, like, like Hill says in the Perkyovis. So, uh, this is called the reign of terror, that for two years, is this the French Revolution? I mean, it's part of it, but it's not the French Revolution. Get what I'm saying? The first part was very different, and the Jews got their rights in the first part. Now, it's just the whole country went crazy, and there's a lot of collateral damage going on all over the place. Throughout all of this, the Jews, of course, in France, are trying to keep a low profile. Everybody is. 
Okay? The royalists never did make a comeback. And so the laws of the revolution were not changed. The civil rights were not revoked. Adaraba, Robespierre, who was the leader of the reign of terror, was a big liberal. He was the first one to advocate for Jewish civil rights back in 1791. I'll tell you another thing. When he was in power, he abolished Negro slavery in France and the French colonies. Get it? The problem with him was, he said, we dem it's, it's like liberal today to a certain degree. I demand virtue of the people. If you're not virtuous, you're Chayav Misa. Okay? I, I'm serious. This, this is how he talked. Virtue. He said, if you're not virtuous, then you're an enemy of France, and you're Chayav Misa. And you're not virtuous, and you're not virtuous. Yeah. And, and that sort of business. So that's the kind of business where you say like this. If you voted for the wrong candidate, if you're in favor of this cause, if you did this wrong, all the rest of it, you're not virtuous. So it's a zero-sum game. That is what's poisoning American politics today. There's no room for somebody to say like this. I think I'm supporting this candidate, and you're supporting that candidate, and we disagree. No, if you do that, you're terrible. And it's a good thing Rosemary isn't around, or we get you. You see? So uh, there's a lot to learn as Americans, in a negative sense, from the French Revolution, the way it unfolded. But the Jews are trying to keep over here. So the new reign of terror wasn't out to attack the Jews as Jews. Leaders like Robespierre, who were deists, they weren't atheists. Uh, Robespierre had his own little religion called the Religion of Reason, uh, which he believes in a god of pure virtue and all that sort of thing. Uh, they know quite well the danger to the revolution is not coming to the Jews or the Protestants. The danger coming to the Catholics, okay? And uh, not from the Protestant Jews. They're no threat at all. As I said before, yeah, look, look, look at the, uh, there's the Vendee where they had all these uh, terrible wars. A is, is hanging B, and B is shooting people at the Church of A, and these guys are having major battles of French against French, and here's a whole village that was wiped out by who knows which group. Does it matter? <laughs> you know, look at it. They, they, they killed everybody in the village. This happened all over the territories that we're talking about here. Napoleon was one of the generals that suppressed this. So uh, it was a bad business. As deists, and you know what I mean by deists. You believe in God in general to any specific religion. Um, the French revolution, leadership and revolutionary elites, the thinkers, the writers, the officials, came to oppose any part of the existing religions which did not make sense. Like Thomas Jefferson. Religion was to be allowed, but religions have to be purged of the superstitious parts. Now, if you're a chassid, you think this is superstitious. If you're a misnaga, you think that's superstitious. You, you get the problem. Of course, what to a deist is superstitious is to a religious Catholic or religious Jew, mystical. Correct? You assert a reality because that's what you believe as a matter of religion. You can't prove it. The, the deist says if you can't prove it, it's not true. And the only one says, no, on the contrary. Reason does not comprehend the totality of reality. You get in one of these kind of arguments. But if it's 1792, bang. <laughs> because of this intellectual atmosphere, Jews were sporadically prevented from keeping Shabbos, in a lot of places, because it's idleness. It makes no sense just to sit around and do nothing for a full day of productive work. It's superstitious. Kashrus, which is silly, unscientific, and antisocial. Right? What? The, the pigs are, are, are bad for health. Everybody's eating it. Okay? Uh, they're against separate cemeteries. Uh, what, well, what's that all about? Are you, are you going to heaven in a different route? And do you think heaven is a physical place? And anyway, aren't you a Frenchman? You know, what's, what's that? Um, mikvahs? Forget that, <laughs> right? Make it altogether a closed-down 
by revolutionaries when everybody see him simply because they're like completely against any common sense. Messianism, you Jews are still praying for a Mashiach. Aren't you unpatriotic? I thought France is your home. Isn't that what you said? Napoleon later on says like this, my policy is to say to the Jews, find Jerusalem in France. Okay? So what are you doing? Particularly hated by the revolutionary intellectuals, the Talmud. Right? The Bible? Eh. The Talmud? Oh, boy. And whenever they find copies of the Talmud, or not whenever, but it often happens they burn them or destroy them, simply because I'm doing the Jews a favor. This stuff is junk. You see? Safer Torahs are often burned. Why? A Bible is a Bible. What is it with this business? You say, oh, it was written by a scribe with a Kamonis. Well, that, that's a hunk of baloney, right? You know, it's just a scroll of a, of, of a deer or something like that, you know. You guys are so, you know, in the, you have a, a magic box over here in an orange Kodesh, and you, ask, and you kiss it, or, you know, what, you know, my goodness, how superstitious can you get? There's widespread confiscation of gold and silver ornaments from all the churches and synagogues to pay to help the government pay the taxes or, or provide a medal for the, you know, cannon and the guns, and even from homes. Circumcision ain't push it during the reign of terror, right? Because uh, that's the ultimate superstitious, disgusting, barbaric ritual. Proof is that the France today and other European countries are in the process of outlawing it. Isn't that true? So uh, you get what I'm saying? In other words, if you're a rabbi, you better preach a sermon which is all about pro-revolutionary France. Uh, you know, I don't want to hear about Thomas Cohen or something like that, you know, or, or, or any of that kind of business, uh, because no superstition over here. Uh, and if not, somebody will tell on you, and you'll get in trouble. Sometimes rabbis are targeted just because they're clergymen. They look kind of funny. They remind you a little bit of the Catholic priests. And therefore, the biggest rub in France, uh, who's a real guttle, Dovis Insheim, who's the author of this, I'll return to him from time to time, He's the Godel Ador in France and, and, in, uh, and in Europe. He's one of the top five rabbis, which is something. Top six. Um, he went into hiding for like, I don't know how many months, simply because it wasn't safe for him to come out of the house. You get it? Uh, too religious, too superstitious, too all the rest of it. I mean, if they would catch him in public with, with tefillin on, my goodness, you know, uh, tefillin in Ocean City. I mean, it doesn't, the two don't go together. Now, uh, all these, now let's be clear about this. These are not anti-Semitic per se. Do you get what I'm saying? It's not a campaign against Judaism. They do it even more to the Catholics, but they, it, it, it has the effect of that. You get what I'm saying? They're not, in other words, if you're not a religious Jew and do, do all this kind of stuff like the Sephardim and Bordeaux, they don't bother you. But if you do these funny things that are offensive to reason, as they see it, as they see it, that smack of superstition, as they see it, that's a violation of the natural law. It's an insult to modern men, and therefore it has to be destroyed. Um, now, eventually, the reign of terror ceased. As I told you before, the Committee of Public Safety was guillotined <laughs> themselves. And uh, the government eventually went through this and that, and they turned into what you would call just an old-fashioned corrupt republic called the Directory. I mean, it was, uh, you know... I know Maryland and Baltimore are free of corruption, but I'm talking about the other. I'm talking about the other states. You understand? Uh, the direct, the directoires. It was 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 extremely famous. I don't know if you know your American history. They had what the X Y Z affair. You remember that? And what was it? The Talleyrand, one of the directors, said, "I'll make a treaty with America for a douceur, for uh, you know the right amount of money." And Charles Cosworth Pinckney said, 
millions for defense and not one cent for tribute. You know, like all, 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 no, it was a Pinkney. Anyway, um, the point is because uh, it actually happened under Adams when he was president. Okay, um, without getting into details, the point is that uh, things got a little bit more normal, but it's not normal in France in the 1790s or early 1800s because the number one problem was the fact that France was at war with the whole world. They were at war with the, the Austria and Prussia and, and, and Russia. The Russian army came to attack the French under the famous Suvorov. And uh, the British, of course, are always there, and the Spanish, and this, and that, and the other. France had its hands full, okay? But to fight this, as you saw in that movie before, I mean, look at this. Here's France in 1789, and they conquered a heck of a lot of, let's put it, they beat, the, they beat Europe. And here's a, 10 years later, I don't know if you can see it closely, but they took over a whole bunch of land such as bigger than France is today. The Rhineland, Belgium, and places like that, Italy. Uh, in order to do this, they went through a lot of corrupt generals, but then they found some good generals. And of course, the number one general who emerges out of this whole business is Napoleon Bonaparte, as we all know. Here's when he was young. Napoleon was born in 1769. So he becomes a general at the age of 26, <laughs> 27. I repeat, 27, pretty young. And he was a genius, as we all know. Um, and he immediately put in command of the attack on Italy, and these are, you know, let's put it this way, every little thing over here is a, is a victory. He won this victory, battle, battle, victory, 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 all over the place in the famous campaign of 1796 and 1797. He didn't lose a battle, and he fought like 50, 60 of them. So, whoa, um, Napoleon is a dramatic figure. And when he's leading the French army, which is no longer on the defensive, as we saw before, and concerned about throwing out the invaders, but is now on the offensive. The other generals were on the defensive, but he wasn't. On the offensive, so he said like this, to heck with the protecting France. We're going to take over the whole Europe. Or at least we're going to take over the countries that, could, that are near us. And he basically conquered Italy in, in, in this long campaign, most of it anyway. Uh, and when he did, he didn't simply say back to the, to the government in Paris, okay, I took over the country, what am I supposed to do with it? He's going to do a General MacArthur. He said, I'm in charge, and I'm running the whole operation. And what he did, this was his personal imagination. And what he said was, I'm changing all of Italy into Republic A, Republic B, Republic C. Genoa is the Ligurian Republic, and this is the Lombard Republic, and all that sort of thing. And uh, first of all, he steals all their artwork. <laughs> you know, that's number one. Had the Mona Lisa end up in Paris, get it? That's number one. Number two, I mean, he ain't stupid, but number two, uh, and he makes the Italians pay a lot of money. Uh, as, as a tribute. You know, he said, you want me to let my soldiers sack the city? You know? uh, and number three, he said, we're going to fix everything up just like in France. We're going to introduce the Declaration of Rights of Man. We're going to get rid of the uh, uh, serfdom. We're going to bring in normal courts. We're going to bring all the laws into uh, modernity. We're going to do this, that, and the other. Oh, and item number 56, no more anti-Jew laws. One of the only item on the other, but that's part of the French list. And if you're a Jew living in 1796 or 1797 in Italy, you are living in a physical ghetto. You're subject to all those diseases that I read you the other night. You're suffering. And all of a sudden, it's a shock. Here comes the French army under this nut, 27-year-old nut, and he's beating everybody. And as soon as he takes over town, he calls the Jews and he says, yes, this is over, knock that wall down. <laughs> you know, Move wherever you want to move. Go wherever you want to go. You know, you want to build a shoal, you don't have to build in a, in a basement anymore like on the Catholic Church. Do what you want. That's where you get these new big fancy shoals in, 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 in Italy and places like that. It's over. Get it? This whole idea was stupid. 
what's that dumb thing you're wearing on here? It's, it's, a, it's a yellow star. Get out of here. You know, like that. Right? Or they had a yellow circle. That's it. But the point is, you know, there's some special Jewish garb, all the rest of it. Uh, who told you to wear that funny-looking beard? The Pope. It's over, you know? And this was like, you know, like, what happened over here? The French come in, and that way Napoleon says like this, I'm not coming in just as somebody stole the Mona Lisa. I'm coming in as a liberator, okay? I'm coming in as someone who is uh, doing a second Moses, so to speak, which was kind of true. And so you can say, as it were, because Napoleon, let's go to the next one. The guy was worshipped by his, look what he did. He led the battles, a number of them, in the front. The guy next to him, so he's lucky he didn't get shot. The guy next to him got shot, and the guy next to him got shot. One of his colonels took a bullet for him in the, in the chest and so forth. So if you're a soldier, you say, I guess I'll follow him through fire and water. Because he's not one of these generals sits in the back and say, you do it. You understand? You do it. Uh, they call him little corporal. Little corporal means the corporal's in the front line. Okay? So therefore, his soldiers, like I said before, go through anything. So he doesn't lose. And... Uh, <laughs> For the Jews, what's the result? Let's go to the next one. Uh, here's Milan and Lahuna Oisora, because the Catholic Church has to literally bow down to him, and he said, get rid of all these walls and all these ghetto things like this. It's a new day. We're making new rules. It's a republic, and, you know, among, among other things, you know, you have the right to freedom of speech and the right of freedom of this and freedom of that, and freedom of religion, and that means even you Jews. Get out of the ghetto, and, you know, these guys, their day is over, <laughs> right? Catholic Church ain't running things anymore. They're there, but they're not running the show anymore. And get used to the new system. So this is interesting because what happened in France happened in France. And now I'm telling you they're starting to export it. Okay? And in Italy, it's very dramatic. Because in Italy, you had, as they say, physical ghettos and many, many uh, difficult laws. Extremely many difficult laws. Besides everything else, the Jews had to pay crazy taxes, like three times what everybody else pays. And they had to pay what they called the life tax, where every time you move to it, you visit a town, and you have to register local police and pay, like I told you the other day, you know, like 15, 20 bucks, 25 bucks, 35 bucks, just to be in the town. It was, it, it was, and you're a peddler, you know, imagine what that does. So there was a thousand one laws, and all of a sudden they're gone. Now this was Napoleon's a liberal side. In 1799, he, he is very famous, he invaded Egypt, because he figured take over the Middle East, and that way stick it to the British, because they couldn't get to India, right? And look at the proclamation to his soldiers when they're in the Middle East. This Napoleon's uh, soldiers. He said like this, we're going to an Arab country, so don't insult Muhammad. Get what I'm saying? So he says, the peoples we living are Muslims. Their first of all faith is no God, but God, Muhammad is a prophet. Don't contradict them. Treat them as you treated the Jews. <laughs> and the Italians, respect the muftis and imams as you respected the rabbis and the bishops. Have the same tolerance for the ceremonies prescribed by the Koran for their mosques as you had for the convents and for the synagogues, for the religion of Moses and that of the other guy. The Roman legions used <laughs> the Roman legions used to protect religions. In other words, look at the tradition of Julius Caesar. He didn't bother the Jews or the other religions. The Romans didn't do that. They took over the country, but they let the religion alone. Okay? So the Roman legions protected all religions. You'll find different customs in Europe. Get your custom them. The people who, among whom we're going treat women differently than us. But in every country, whoever violates a woman is a monster. So pillaging only enriches a small number of men. It dishonors the streets of resources, makes enemies of the people interested to have as our friends. First city we will encounter was built by Alexander the Great. That was Alexandria in Egypt. We will find every step that remains worthy of, 
we shall find every step great remains, meaning, a, um, you know, what do you call it, the pyramids, worthy of exciting French emulation. So the point is, he's saying, let's treat the Arabs like we treated the Jews, meaning well, treat them well. Um, within a few years, without going through all the details, Napoleon became the emperor of the French in 1804, you know, skipping all the media stuff. <coughs> became emperor, now it's a new day. Now he's in charge of the guns of business. And, uh, and now the personality of Napoleon becomes all important because there's no more revolutionary government, there's no more directory, there's no more reign of terror, there's no more committee of public safety. All those guys are dead or now they're just corrupt politicians or they're out of the country. You understand? And there's a new regime in charge and get used to it and let's put it this way. He's going to be a king. Well, he's the emperor. And listen to the title, the emperor of the French, not the emperor of France. He's not divine right of kings that he ruled the country. He was freely elected. They had a plebiscite. And uh, that means the people voted. And what do you call it? They voted for Napoleon to be emperor. So he said, I'm emperor of the French. Get it? It's a democratic uh, position. What I'm trying to say is to Western Europeans, how should I put this? To you and me, a king and emperor is the same thing. One may be bigger than the other. If you know the Roman tradition, an emperor is not a king, okay? It's someone chosen to head the republic. So even though Napoleon will go crazy on the royalty junk, but this is his, his, his claim to a fame. He, ha he had a lot of pluses and he had a lot of minuses. Uh, here he is as a general, here he is as a legislator. When he uh, centralized the country, he made the code Napoleon, he reformed the laws, uh, he fixed up the economy, he uh, did the bridges and the roads and that sort of business. He put in the uh, impartial judiciary. I mean, he did a heck of a, he centralized France. All the things the revolution we're talking about, he did in spades. Uh, so there's no question about that. Um, but he had his minuses. And his biggest minus is his rigidity. At the end, he was this Italian guy who could never let go of something once he had it. And, and this was a, a terrible trait. Because in statesmanship, if you don't be at war all the time, you can't grab everything. You gotta learn how to share something. You understand what I'm saying? You gotta learn, let me put it this way. When the Americans came to Japan in 1945, I'll give you an example, MacArthur. Did he say, I guess, grab everything in the country? No, he said, I guess, help the Japanese out. That's it, make a friend. Fix them up. As you know, we gave them money for many years. What happened? We built up a country, and now we don't have a war with them. You follow what I'm saying? It can't be, like, grab, 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 grab. So he had that grab, grab, grab business, and hold, 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 and stash it away, stash it away, stash it away. So, uh, there's William Pitt, his great nemesis, the Prime Minister of England. Napoleon says, I conquered all this, I want to hold on to this forever. Oh no, no way, Jose, we're not going to ever agree to that. Right? I mean, how about giving this up, this up, this up, this up, and just having France? Oh, no, 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 that's not good. Why? I conquered it, therefore I hold it. Get my point? Get my point? So, 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 so where's the chance for negotiation? Where's the chance for compromise? And if it's a zero-sum game, then, then, then I'll never agree to it. So uh, now that he's in charge of everything, he has to deal with 100,000 different issues, including the Jews. Again, I'm going to always emphasize, the Jews are never at the top of the list, but they're there on the list. Napoleon is uh, a bureaucratic absolutist. I mean, he wants to run the country pretty much by himself. There is a Congress and a Senate, but they don't count too much by him. There is, but it's more of a show. He is a very brilliant guy. He is. And he was capable of running the whole country. He wasn't the King Louis at all. Uh, you know, he didn't waste his time doing junk. He could, if you ever see, he could transact a lot of business in an hour. You understand? He had like 10 secretaries and he, he's following everything. See, he, he had that ability. And uh, he centralizes the country, brings everything under a, a, a single regime, 
fixes the money up, fixes the import-export up, fixes the, uh, what shall I say, the, uh, the schools, especially the university. He did a hundred different things. And he's a bureaucrat absolutist. He has a liberal bent, meaning he did agree with a lot of things in the French Revolution. Um, and now when you get to the question of the Jews, so he looks at it from a French point of view, and as he sees it, how do you retain the Jewish honey but remove the sting of separateness? The Jews are our citizens, and they have some good qualities, but they also have bad ones. How do we get, and the worst of them is when they hang together and they don't intermarry and, and integrate with everybody else. If they do that, then their talents become part of France, and uh, they're eventually we don't even have to worry about them anymore because they just dissolve into the great mass, and that's the way he thinks it'll be best for everybody. Listen, it's not Hitler. I'm not killing anybody. Agreed? I can, but just trying to get everybody, you know, in there. As long as the Jews stay together, have the crazy laws, the Talmudic stuff, it's bad. Uh, so how do we fix the situation and get them to do the right thing? Uh, the biggest problem he sees it is the usury, not the Jewish money lending, which I'll tell you again is always a joke because it wouldn't been the, the money lending is because people need credit. You're saying under Napoleon, the government's taking all the credit to pay for the armies. So where's the average guy going and, and get a loan? Um, now, how do you fix this, the Jewish situations? By the time Napoleon, he became emperor in 1804, he had his big battles, Austerlitz and all this, in late 1805. When he comes back in 1806, he passes through Alsace, and the people complaining, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. Okay, they're going to own the whole place. The problem is, how do you fix the situation? Uh, here is a guy later in life, Count Louis Mollet, at that time it was Louis Mollet. He puts a bureaucrat who's 25 years old in charge of the whole Jewish business. The guy was born in 1781. So he says, uh, you know, basically, you're a French bureaucrat, you run the Jewish business and, 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 and advise me what to do. Study up on it and do all the work. Um, uh-oh. Right? Uh-oh. It's actually better for the Jews when the emperor's off fighting his million battles, as you see in the next slide. Right? You know, when he's off fighting in the winter, here's the Battle of Eilau in East Prussia in the winter, uh, then he ain't got no time to bother with the Jews. Um, but anyhow, when you get to early 1806, and as I said before, he's coming back from his victory at Austerlitz, and he goes through Alsace back to Paris. The Christians there complain that the Jews have everyone by the neck because of usury. In the natural course of things, they say, the Jews will own all the land very soon because nobody can pay their high rates of interest. True or not, these complaints bring forth in the emperor what I would regard as atavistic feelings uh, because he was born Catholic, in Corsica, as you know, of uh, Christian mysticism, even though he's an atheist, but because Napoleon was an atheist, let's get that straight. Uh, Napoleon's an atheist, but an atheist can still believe in the in, in the curse of God upon the Jews. <laughs> you follow? And uh, that's what he is. Plus, his uncle, his half uncle, was Cardinal Fesch, who was uh, as a uh, was a cardinal in the church, and he says, "Oh, don't you know God said if you let the Jews uh, out of the ghetto, uh, they'll destroy the world." and what's wrong with you and all the rest. So he's getting a lot of uh, bad pressure and bad advice. And uh, what he hears from uh, his childhood and from his uh, guys like that is the Jews are an accursed race. There's the Christian tradition of the wandering Jew. You don't even know what I'm talking about. The Jews have no tradition of the wandering Jew. But the Christians have a big tradition. There are movies about it. The one, Achashverosh, the wandering Jew, because, uh, you know, he was there at the crucifixion or something like that. In other words, these are their mysticism stuff. And to us, we can laugh at he believes in it, the Jew is always surviving, but always persecuted. And he said, Napoleon's like, what is this? It's, it's just an interesting sort of business. And we see, look at this, a conversation between Napoleon and uh, Count Molay about the Jews and Ribis. 
the emperor is talking, you looked into the Jewish business, it's a serious matter. Napoleon says, I can't allow all the property owners of Alsace Lorraine to be ruined by money lenders and their children with them. It would be an insult to me, Napoleon, to tolerate any longer. I owe the same protection to all Frenchmen, and I cannot regard as Frenchmen these Jews who suck the blood of true Frenchmen. So he's really got it out for the Alsatian Jews. He's not against the Jews, the Sephardim, you know, in the South who aren't bothering anybody as he sees it. So he's, I'll, I'll say it again, he's not exactly Hitler, but he's got it out for the Hasidim, if I could use that term. The question of method is, I know, very difficult. What do you do about it? Because you can't simply say nobody owes any money anymore, which he eventually actually did say, because what will that do to the credit market? Okay? If you cancel all the debts, if all the banks know that nobody has to pay anything, what, what's going to happen? And so the lawyers protest on the ground that a sanctity of engagement is voluntarily entered upon, whatever consequence involved. But personally, I look at it as a practical result alone, meaning I'm a soldier and I don't want the whole country to fall in the hands of the Jews. And if I do nothing, the result will be the number of ruined families by rapacious and pitiless moneylenders. The Jewish people, whose history is so curious, I told you before, it's the wandering Jew, they've always been everywhere, they're always beat up by everybody, they out-survive everybody. What is, what is that, you know? You read Josephus, the Jews are there. You read Herodotus, the Jews are there. What is going on? The Jewish people, this is so curious, presents us with great problems to solve. See how he looks at it? The Jewish people in France represent a problem to solve. To what extent can enlightened Christian governments raise them to some degree from their degraded condition? <laughs> and uh, as you've been engaged in research about them, because Mole, who knows nothing about the Jews, said, I started reading a whole bunch of books about them. You can't read Hebrew. Right? So he's reading books. How many books are about, about the Jews in the year 1806? Most of them written by anti-Semitic Christian embraces. Right? That's, that's out there. Since you begin research about it, you must know that most of the mysteries can be, this is Napoleon talking, most of the bad stuff of the Jews can be traced to that indigestible compilation called the Talmud. That indigestible compilation in which, by, by the side of their genuine political tr traditions, meaning they do have derises in there, but they also have the corrupt moral code the moment their relations with Christians are in question. So the Talmud teaches you to cheat the non-Jew. The Talmud sire, I interrupted, if I'm not mistaken, is a, this is Malay, is unquestionably a diffuse and voluminous collection of commentaries on the fundamental law by the doctors, rabbis, all periods, and although some of them reveal enlightenment and erudition, a large number are inspired by hatred of Christianity. That's how they understand the Talmud. And we find the most contemptible refinements on the art of extorting money from others and enriching oneself on the spoils of everything which is not Jewish. Meaning, what a mitzvah is to go and cheat people and charge interest to people that are not Jewish. Do you have the rest of it, or is that it? That's fine. Yeah, you get, you get a, it's a very fascinating uh, conversation. It's online. You know, if, you go for, if you're actually interested in pursuing this, you know, count Malay and the Jews and you'll find it all. Uh, because he wrote a book about it uh, later in life. Okay, so where are we going with all this? Napoleon is a smart guy. He has other advisors. Here's this guy, Bunyo. Jacques-Claude Bunyo, uh, he says, I looked into reports that Jews are not cheating everybody. I looked at all these things, a bunch of lies. I, see, I hear what's happening over here, it's not true over here and over here, over there. Napoleon, he says, smirks him, says, yeah, yeah, you know, in other words, my token liberal, you know, okay, fine. And he says to the other guy, let's get serious. Now, with typical Napoleonic brilliance, because he was a brilliant guy, and typical Napoleonic obtuseness, because he was also obtuse, the emperor discerns the single way 
to reform the Jewish religion along modern lines. Hear what I said? In other words, according to Judaism, what's the one way we can get them to change their religious practices? Anybody know the answer to that question? According to the Torah, what's the one way to get people to not keep Shabbos? Alpiyah Torah, or kosher, or anything else? That's Sanhedrin, right? Alpiyah Torah Sheyeruchah. Agreed? If this, I don't say it's going to happen, obviously, but if the Sanhedrin says, do this, do that, you got to listen. Right? And what does the Gemara say? Even if they tell you right is left, and even if they tell you left is right. Which means even, even if the Sanhedrin says, let me put it to you this way, to use modern terminology, if the Chazanish told you, go over here, drive a car, and go tell somebody, so you do it, because you say, I guess, Chazanish knows the Shabbos, if he's saying it has a reason. Like happened in the Holocaust, right? That they were, they were driving to see Roosevelt and all this kind. Of, there's a reason. There's a reason. You understand? So the, that's on a, on a personal level. What we call a posik. Imagine when you have a Sanhedrin, they can literally hold him and fold him. So Napoleon said, "Like this, let's get a Sanhedrin together that I can control or influence, and they'll paskin get rid of all this stuff." That's why it makes a Sanhedrin. You follow? It's actually a very brilliant idea, except it's obtuse. Because he didn't realize, what, you're going to get 71 gedolim, as if anybody could do a thing like that, and so on and so forth. So he, you know, that's exactly a typical example of Napoleon. He's smart but dumb. You know, smart but dumb. Listen, many of us are. Some of us are only 50% of that. Anyway, uh, so, uh, and the point I'm getting at is he discerned something that maybe you don't realize, and that is what is the strength of Judaism down the ages that survived the last 15, 1600 years is what I call the Will Rogers aspect. Remember Will Rogers said like this, I'm not a member of any organized political party, I'm a Democrat, right? So hold on for a second, hold on for a second. You have Reform, Conservative, Orthodox. Talk to me about the Reform. It's beautifully organized. They got a National Council of the Synagogues, the Union of American Hebrew Congregations. They got the Central Conference of American Rabbis. Uh, it, they get together and, and they pass resolutions for this, against that, and it filters down. And there's a process, not just top-down. They get feedback and they work out consensus, and then that's the official position of the reform movement, when there is. Same thing with the conservative. you got one JTS, Jewish Theological Seminary. you got your rabbinical assembly. Uh, I think it's called the United Synagogue, the collection of all those shuls. And it's, it's, it's like a pyramid. It's great. And same thing. You know, now they're, for example, they're debating intermarriage and things like that. It's within the movement. And they'll pass their resolutions or they won't. Okay, what's the organizational place where all the Orthodox are existing? I get, I, I, get, I get a bunch of smirks, right? Ain't ever going to happen. You follow? Now, is that, so we are radically decentralized. Matter of fact, there have been attempts in the 1500s and so forth, maybe you know, by from people, great rabbis, to put together a Sanhedrin. Didn't have a Chinaman's chance. Right? Didn't have a chance. Because how are you going to get the rabbit degree in anything? All joking aside. Correct? All joking aside. How are you going to do that? It's ridiculous. You know, one of my favorite words is um, from Margolis Yom. Famous uh, commentator, Rabbi Ruben Margolis, who died in 1970. It was a Galtzianer, you know, from Lvov. He had a famous book story, big, very big Tamachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachach
The Anche Kinnis Agdol had 120 members. After all, a Sanhedrin has 70 or 71 maybe. Where do you get 120? That is a lot of ways of answering it, but I'll tell you what he said. Because he's a charif. He's a Galician charif. He's like this. Used to be they had a Sanhedrin of 70 people. That was picked by God in the time of Moses. True? At one point, Moshe Rabbeinu said, I can't take it anymore. I quit. Kill me. Hargeni no harot. And Hashem said, calm down. We'll get you help. That's what he says. I'll get you 70 people. You know, take it easy. We, we can do this. You know? And, uh, and that's how the Sanhedrin formed, as they get the 70 elders. And then it became a self-perpetuating institution. Because Moshe died, and Yeshua died, and this one died, this one. When somebody died, they, let's say there were 71, and somebody died. They themselves picked the, 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 the replacement. Because who knows better than them? It's the difference of self-perpetuating body, if you follow what I'm saying. Going on for hundreds of, hundreds of years. So there's no question who's on there. They're the ones who decide who's getting on there. After all, as I said before, if they're not the Gedolim to decide who should be on the group, then who else? But then, my friends, he says, comes the destruction of the first temple and the physical destruction of the kingdom of Judah and the scattering of the Jews and the killing of many of them, and they're sent to Babylon. And then 70 years later or something like that, they start to come back until finally they have a foothold to revive everything. And they start from scratch rebuilding the temple, the second temple, agreed? This time Ezra and Nehemiah, or a little before that, and then Ezra shows up, and one of the things Ezra wants to do is reconstitute Sanhedrin. What you and I call the Anshe Gesegdola is actually a Sanhedrin. They didn't use the word Sanhedrin that time because that's a Greek word that came later. They used the word Knesset. So, and Knesegdola means the famous, the great one. The problem Ezra has, he suggests, is the following. Okay, now we have our own little country over here. You have Rishalim, you have a base in English. Now we'll set up a Sanhedrin. All I have to do is find the 70 biggest rabbis 71 biggest rabbis, and then everybody will listen to them. What's the problem? You're leaving me out? I'm not going with you. Is it Chabad? Is it, wait, is it Avi Weiss? No, you get my point? Is it the yeshivas? Is it the rebbes? Is it this one? You have, you have five Satmar and two Belzers, you have two, you know, how does that work? And there was only one way, he suggests, to, get, to, to attain the goal. The goal was to get some group that everybody listens to. So we can start to sign up all over again. Because without that, the Jewish religion doesn't have its dynamic element. It remains static. And so, how would I do it? He's like this. It's a one-time deal. We'll take everybody. You know, you have a son-in-law who you hold should be on there. Put him on. You, you follow? You follow? You got a brother-in-law? We'll put him on. You know why? Get the doggone thing up and running. And therefore, it was, instead of 70, it ended up with 120. Now, what happened was, once they got 120, you had a son, uh, who did amazing things. They created the sitter. They canonized the Bible. They, you know, did 100, 100 very important changes in Judaism. Very, very, they did great things, which are necessary for the ultimate survival of the Jewish people. No question about it. According to some, they began to canonize the Torah Shebel Peh. They did remarkable things within Judaism. But it was 120 when the first one died. They didn't replace him. When the second one died, they didn't replace him over the course of years. When they got down to 70 or 71, when this one died, then they started voting new people in. But by that time, they already had a going concern. Right? So all I'm trying to say by that to our Torah is, you see how difficult it is. Oh, you wanna, you're Napoleon. You want to get a Sanhedrin together. Oh, sure, just get the 70 rabbis. He didn't know that part because he was a Catholic Corsican. And he was atheist by this time. And he's a Frenchman. He knows how to fight a battle. 
and he knows what Jews are, but he doesn't understand Judaism because he's not approaching it from a sympathetic point of view, trying to find out what's going on the inside, but he's approaching from the outside, so he was a genius, and he was a brilliant. And what I just described is a stroke of, of genius that you can discern how, what does it take in Judaism to change things, but he, he messed it up, obviously. And so um, the bureaucrats in 1806, 1807, assemble a group of Jewish leaders, what they call the Assembly of Notables, meaning they say to all the department heads in France who are in charge of the provinces, who are the hush of the Jews in your town? Who's the rich one? Who's the smart one? We need some rabbis too. Let me get me some rabbis over here. You know, that's how you do it to make this look like, like a Hollywood director would do for a movie. In other words, the bureaucrats surveyed the communities in France and Italy and Holland, because at that time Italy and Holland are part of France. That's what Napoleon's conquest had led to. And they put together a group of 111 leading and representative Jews, at least what they identify as leading and representative Jews, to assemble in Paris and hold preliminary discussions as hachonas lahakomas of Sanhedrin. Okay? And to ascertain what is the doctrine of Judaism in regard to certain questions. All right? Certain questions. Um, the emperor actually asked them 12 specific questions. This is what the French are interested in. Is it lawful for Judy to have more than one wife? Because then how can you be citizens in France? Is divorce permitted by the Jewish religion? Because the Catholics don't have divorce. Is divorce valid, although pronounced not by courts of justice, but by virtue of laws and contradiction in the French code? In other words, if a couple is married and they get a get, so in the eyes of the French law, they're not divorced yet. Does the Jews consider them divorced? Which again is a way of saying like this, are you running your own show independent of the government? May a Jewess marry a Christian or the other way around. May a Jew marry a Christian woman? Or does the Jew law order that the Jews should only intermarry among themselves? Again, are you separating yourself out from the other French? Um, in the eyes of Jews, are Frenchmen who are not of the Jewish religion considered as brothers or strangers? Really? Okay. What conduct does Jewish law prescribe towards Frenchmen or not Jewish religion? Can you kill them? Can you cheat them? You see what I'm saying? Uh, do Jews born in France and treated by law as French citizen, do they acknowledge France as their country? Really? Are they bound to defend it, to obey the laws and follow directions of the civil code? Who elects the rabbis? Uh, these are power questions, aren't they? What kind of police jurisdiction the rabbis exercise over the Jews? What judicial power do they exercise over? In other words, what's the nature? Do you guys, do you guys still have a kehillah? Do you guys still have an autonomous, coercive community? Are you run by the rabbis or by the uh, parnasim? Right? Are the police protection and rabbis regulated by Jewish law? Or are they just a minhag? No, is this a matter of Judaism? A derisa, as we would say today? Or is it just a minhag? Are there professions for which the Jews are excluded by their law? Does Jewish law forbid Jews to take usury from fellow Jews? What about from strangers, from non-Jews? So he's not asking Maimonidean questions, you know, the nature of God, all the rest of it. They're very tachlis oriented, which is how do the Jews interact, regard, really, 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 the others. Who are these 111 people? It's a mixed bag. You had your highly assimilated Sephardim, because you can just imagine from Bordeaux and these guys. Uh, give me a break. Take a look at him. Um, the kind of Jew that Napoleon liked. He said to the Alsatian Jews, why can't you be like the Jews in Bordeaux? Dress normal, talk French, don't be so religious, uh, superstitious, and so forth. Remember, the 
Bordeaux Jews don't really most of them believe in the Gemara anyway. See, that shows how, how um, what's the right word, educated they are. Uh, you had your rich Ashkenazic Jews like Bear, Isaac Bear, this is the big tobacco guy. He's the cousin of the surf bear before. Then you had a whole bunch of what we call loser rabbis and loser rabbi rabbis, which means you had people who were abundant but were, I would say like this, C-level scholars, and yet people who the French said he's a rabbi, he was a chazan, he couldn't, couldn't read Hebrew well, just a sitter. You know, like you have in the uh, Sephardic um, uh, kilot in uh, Bayonne and uh, Saint Sebastian, and even Bordeaux. You know, they know the tefillah, get it? They, they can be a bal koray, uh, but they don't understand halach or anything like that, let alone any other level, and that's what you call a rabbi. And then you also had a couple of genuine rabbonim. As I said before, David Sinsheim was the Godel Ador, or among them. Let's put it this way. Here's a guy who knows total shas. If you take a look at uh, his set over here, which is on uh, much of shas, it's a heavy lumdus over there. And when he dies, the chasam sober gives him a hesper like you've never seen. Okay? So you, it's a funny group. The 111, I don't know if Napoleon meant it, actually was kind of a reflection to some degree of the wide variety that you find in Jews in the French Empire, which includes France and Italy and, and Holland. Okay? Uh, Count Molay, Louis Molay, uh, patronizes them. After all, he's, he's old, 26, 27 years old. So he, but he's, he's a Frenchman. He's in charge. He's the emperor's official. Uh, you know, so he says, I hope you take your responsibilities uh, seriously and you'll become civilized and all the rest of it. Now, the modernisha among the 111 are totally willing to reform Judaism drastically because that's what the emperor wants. They want to do whatever Napoleon wants and you know, get in trouble with him. The modern people, however, the rabbis are on the other end. Like David Sinsheim, he doesn't want to get rid of any of the halachas. The modern people realize that without the rabbis, their changes will have no legitimacy. The whole point of what's eventually going to come to Sanhedrin is you've got to get all the Jews to say this is okay. If it's shoved down the throat, then it's not okay. Now the truth is, the whole thing is shoved down the throat. What Napoleon is doing is saying like this. I'll put a gun to your head and say like this. You're doing this of your own free will, right? You know? But I told you before, he had this obtuseness. And this is how he operated. Uh, the rabbis realized they can't tell Napoleon to mind his own business. And this David Sinsheim had to dance on eggs because he's surrounded by a bunch of Amaratsim and Kalim Shabakalim. That's who they were, these other guys. Um, like I said before, the rabbis from Italy, a sad uh, situation. And he had to use all of his skill to BS it, to choosing his words very carefully. And it's a long business. I'm, it's, it's the hour is late. So I'm thinking what I'll do is I'll stop here at this uh, dramatic point because it'll take a few minutes to get into all the answers that they give to the uh, Napoleon questions. And you'll see it's a model of uh, obfuscation, um, but not exactly. It's, it's, it's very interesting the way it's drafted. And, uh, and then we'll finish up the Napoleon part, and I'll continue uh, my remarks for the other night. But I have pity in you because of the late hour, and therefore we'll call it over here and continue tomorrow. As always, we'll dive in my room in two minutes.